There are two issues at the heart of most of the problems that we deal with, and Jesus addresses those right at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The first is anger, and we talked about anger last week. The second is lust. Lust is one of the biggest challenges in our society. It's everywhere and it drives everything. The message is, do whatever you want to do. And that sounds like heaven. I mean, who wouldn't want to just do what you want to do all of the time? But doing what we want to do all of the time doesn't create heaven. Really what it does is unleashes hell and causes problems that we never would have anticipated or maybe that we anticipate but bring about anyway. And that's why Jesus begins with these two issues, anger and lust. If you can get control over those things in your life, you'll be way ahead of the game. And your life will be filled with a whole lot less angst and difficulty. You'll have a much deeper sense of peace and well-being. And if Jesus' followers can get control of their anger and their lust, then the community that Jesus is creating will be substantially different than anything else that's out there. So with that in mind, let's listen to what Jesus has to say, beginning in Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So we start with the pattern that we talked about last week. You've heard it said, but I say to you, moving from the conventional wisdom, the accepted way of looking at stuff to what the community that Jesus is creating actually looks like and values. So you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery. So once again, these two things seem dissimilar. They're two things that we want to separate, mostly for our own self-interest. We say, I've never committed adultery. Well, great, and you shouldn't. But Jesus is going to the heart of the matter. Jesus is looking at our innermost person, at our heart, at our soul, at who we really are. And if our heart is filled with thoughts of adultery or lust, then the action can't be ruled out if the right circumstances present themselves. I mean, think of all the things you might have done if the circumstances had presented themselves. Think of all the actions you've been saved from either by the grace of God or just sheer dumb luck. If it's in your heart, generally it will come out. And conversely, if it's not in your heart, even if the opportunity presents itself, you aren't going to do it. So let's define what lust is. I ran across this description and I really liked it. Lust is largely selfish with little thought or regard for the other person's well-being. Lust is looking at another person and saying, you are simply a means to an end for me. You're someone who can be degraded for my pleasure. I don't care what happens to you. I can even excuse it. She deserved it. She asked for it. She liked it. That sounds stark and horrific when you say it out loud, but I'm simply naming the truth. We need to understand that's how ugly some of the things we do are. 
And even if we think some of our choices are victimless, they really aren't. So contrast that with Jesus, who says that every human being matters. Every human being bears the image of God. This is the community that Jesus is building. You're not a commodity for me to exploit. You have worth and you have dignity, and so do I. I don't have to degrade you, and I don't have to degrade myself either. So let me make a couple of notes. First, your intent matters. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, there's something that's lost in that translation. Not very many English translations get what the Greek is really saying. The Greek is all about intent. The Greek says, if you look to lust. In other words, you're seeking to lust. You've gone out looking for something to lust after. Now, intent is important because you can't control what pops into your mind. You can't, to a large degree, always control what you see. You can to some level, but not everything. But you can control what you do with what you see. You can have a predisposition. You can literally, like the passage says, be going out or be going online with the intent of lusting after someone or something. Or you can be like, I'm going for a walk where I know there's going to be people. I'm at the beach. I'll be online. But my intent is not to, to commodify anyone. It's not my intent to treat someone like they don't matter. That's not in my heart. A, a while ago, I've told the story before, um, I got a phone call from a really upset parishioner because there was pornography on the church website. And it was kind of like an ad in the corner. And uh, they were very upset that we had this on our website. And I thought, oh, my, my friend, that's not on the church's website. There's only one reason that that would pop up on your computer. It's all about intent. The other day, I was following a baseball thread. It was like Dodgers Nations or something like that because I'm a Dodger fan. And so I'm just following latest Dodger news. I'm looking at pitching. I'm looking at people who are having issues and stuff. And all of a sudden, the responses took a very, very dark turn. And I was like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. That's not where my heart is. It's not where I want my heart to be. I couldn't control that it popped up on this website, but I could control what I did with it. It's all about intent. Part of what we need to do then is to decide ahead of time what our intent is. There's this great line in Job 31. It ended up being picked up by an internet accountability software company. But in Job 31, it says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? I just like the, the poetry of the language of made a covenant with my eyes. I have promised myself that I will look at some things and I will not look at other things. That I will look at people one way and not look at people another way. And, and what that means is that you've decided ahead of time what you're going to do when a situation arises. Because if you don't have a game plan, you've already lost. I also like the reminder at the end there that God sees my ways. And really, so do other people. You are never truly alone, especially when you're online. 
So you need to decide what you're going to do ahead of time, what your intent is. I think we need to fill our minds with other thing, with other things. Boredom is the enemy. When we have time to kill, our minds wander. We need to fill the time that we have with more important things so that we don't end up in a position where we're just hanging out with nothing constructive to do. And then I think we need to see things clearly. Lust is an imposter. Lust is a poor imitation of love. Love is about giving. Lust is about taking. Love is about ascribing value to. Lust is about taking value from. Love finds fulfillment and satisfaction. Lust is never satisfied. It requires more and more. It will never fill the desire that you're trying to fill. One of my favorite authors, quoted him last week, Frederick Buechner, says this, Lust is the craving for salt of a man who's dying of thirst. I love that because the last thing somebody who's thirsty needs is salt. The last thing most of us need is lust. It's not going to lead to a place of life. Love builds up. Lust tears down. Love thrives in the light. Lust is a denizen of the dark. Love is the foundational building block of strong community. Lust will destroy community. If you're honest with yourself and if lust characterizes and controls your life, you really at some point have to stop and ask yourself, is this who I want to be? Because lust may not have caught up with you yet, but it will. It will. We need to create new habits. Read a real book. Develop a real relationship. Find an opportunity to serve. If you feel like you can do better, find someone to help you. Most people are terrible accountability partners. If you want to replace the lust in your heart with something more productive, let me know when you're serious and I'll be happy to help. There's also another insidious side to lust. Lust drives us to achieve a perfection that's impossible. We have to look a certain way to have value. And there are tons of people who feel worthless because they've been told they aren't beautiful enough or thin enough or have the right color hair or the right lip thickness or the right bodily proportions. And there's a lot of people who've had damage done to them because they're chasing after a, a, a body type or look that is driven by lust and can never actually be achieved. Look around at the people that you care about. Are you perpetuating a lie that's damaging people that you love and that God loves? Because the strong message of the kingdom, what Jesus is laying out here in the Sermon on the Mount, is that you're valued just the way you are. You're made in the image of God. You do not need to debase yourself or others in order to find love and satisfaction. And then verse 29 and verse 30 are really not to be taken literally. Please do not take these literally. It's for emphasis. It's to show how serious Jesus really is about this because of the serious damage it can do to us and to other people. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, for emphasis, but I want to say a word about hell. 
I, I'm not gonna do a theology of hell here, but I wanna talk about the word that's translated hell there. It's the Hebrew word Gehenna, and it comes from the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is the valley that is just south of Jerusalem, and we'll see it if you go to Israel with me next year. Because while he could be talking about something that happens in eternity, I think Jesus is talking about something much more immediate when he brings up this picture of Gehenna. Because what is Gehenna? It was the garbage dump for Jerusalem. And it was a place where there were perpetual fire. It smelled bad. So, I mean, some of people's pictures of hell comes out of the literal Gehenna. It's just all you have to imagine is the place where all of the, the um, all of the detritus, all of the bodily waste, all of the trash, it all goes and just sits there. And there's a perpetual fire that's burning there. It is filled with decay. It is a horrible place and you don't want your life to be there. Talk to any addict who's hit bottom and they will tell you about Gehenna. It's because it's real in our lives and Jesus wants us to avoid that. Then Jesus moves on to divorce in verse 31. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So remember that these are not just a collection of pithy sayings of Jesus. There's a linear progression here. So adultery, lust, the desire for more and different, the attempt to fulfill a desire that will never be fulfilled will ultimately lead to the destruction of your most fundamental relationships. I don't know anyone that got married and thought, I hope this ends in divorce. Wouldn't this be great if this didn't work out and caused a lot of pain to a lot of people? That doesn't happen. But people find themselves in situations where they have to decide if their marriage is over. And there's real angst about what the right thing to do is. Now this particular passage has been used to inflict all sorts of pain on people. It's a difficult passage. But in order to figure out what Jesus is getting at, we have to put it in the context of what we know about Jesus as a whole. So we're back to the pattern. The it has been said part comes from Moses. Moses allowed people to get divorced and he did it for one specific reason and that was because their hearts were hard. What does it mean to have a hard heart? It means you can't be changed. It means you're not open. It means you are inflexible. It means you don't care. So fundamentally, they didn't want to listen to God. They wouldn't submit their wants and their desires and their goals to God. They wouldn't trust that what God had provided for them was good. They wouldn't trust that the grass on the other side of the fence wasn't really greener. So Moses allows them to get divorced because of the hardness of their hearts. So divorce is not the ideal, but it can and does happen because marriage occurs between two broken people. But by the time of Jesus, a whole school of thought develops. And this says that men can divorce their wives for whatever reason. You burned the toast, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee. It's an actual case. You've really let yourself go, I divorce you. I'm really bored in our marriage, I divorce you. 
All of those are real things that happened and they were within at least the school of thought within the realm of what was okay. But note that this is all about the options that men have. What is the option for a woman who is divorced? Really, she has none. She'll be destitute. Her family will most likely disown her out of shame. If she's lucky, she might find another husband, but there's no guarantee and he's probably not going to be the cream of the crop. There's not a whole lot of economic opportunity for her, save one thing. So Jesus' concern is for the people who will get hurt in a divorce. Jesus always values women and always elevates their position to being equal with men. Jesus is concerned for the hearts of the people who are involved and for the protection of the most vulnerable. He's concerned about selfishness controlling instead of selfless controlling. He's concerned that the pursuit of happiness might be more important than keeping promises and slogging through difficult times. Jesus' concern is that people are not taking marriage seriously and are throwing people away to meet their own needs. Now, it's hard to make application because every divorce is unique, every situation is unique, every rule has an exception, but I think we can still make some general observations. The first is that marriage is a serious commitment, so enter it carefully. Make good choices when you decide who it is you want to marry. If your friends, if your parents are all going, mmm, you might need to listen to that. If there are bad signs, if you have to make excuses for the person, you might need to take it a little bit slower. Make good choices when you enter into the marriage. And remember that marriage isn't easily dissolved, not legally, not emotionally, not financially, not relationally, not spiritually because there's something special that happens in marriage. The scripture refers to it as the two becoming one. And it really isn't even just referring to a sex act, it's referring to the bond of two people who become a team, who become one unit. And that's not easily separated. The second thing to note is that our actions affect other people. There's a lot of hurt and pain around divorce within the marital dyad, certainly, but within friends, within families, even if it's relatively, relatively amicable, there is a lot of pain there. And people always say that kids are resilient, but less so than you might think. There's a lot of kids who are bearing the consequences of the selfish choices of their parents. I also have to note that Jesus is talking about this in the context of the larger community. When people in our church get divorced, I'm always interested to know who gets the church in the settlement because it affects all of us. The next, I, I really want to put an emphasis on keeping our promises. The promise that we make to love is the promise to prefer the person day in and day out, even if it's not a challenge. Divorce hardly ever happens overnight. It's an outgrowth of people who stopped keeping their promises, whether in big ways or just a series of small ways. The last point is probably one that you're going to go, what? I don't, I don't see. I think we need to live lives of significance. 
so that we are driven by more than just what makes me happy. And the truth of the matter is that many of us are driven primarily by what's gonna make us happy. One of my really good friends, this happened years ago, decided that he was bored with his wife. His wife was great, he had a, a great family, his kids were in high school and college, he was doing well in his career, they had lots of friends, and he just got bored. And he went into great detail with me about how bored he was in his relationship and how he decided he wanted to get divorced. And I talked to him, you know, I gave him all the things that you would think that I would say, I said all those things, and generally as the case, he ignored every single one of them. And then he eventually found a girlfriend, he divorced his wife, and everything that I said turned out to be true. But the thing that I really warned him about was that this new relationship that he had was gonna be exciting, and it was gonna be fresh, and he was gonna be like, why didn't I do this before? Because this is so great. And I said, within a year, you'll be bored again. And I remember the day that we went out to lunch, and he said, you were right, I'm bored. He attacked the wrong problem. Megan and I had another uh, couple friend, and he lost his job. He was uh, very influential, very high paid, had a very fulfilling career, and he lost his job. And so if you've ever lost your job, you know that all of a sudden you have a lot more growing out than you have coming in, and you kind of have to be careful about what you do. And she never changed her spending habits. She never changed what she did for herself or what she wanted. And one day, you know, because we were all close, this came up. And this is what she said. This is part of the package. He knew that when he married me. And I was like, oh my goodness. There was no sense of partnership. There was no sense of we're in this together. It was basically, this is what makes me happy. This is what I'm gonna do. And he's just gonna have to deal with it. Two examples of people who were only looking at what was going to make them happy. That marriage ended up in divorce too. Surprise, surprise. If it's all about what makes us happy, first, we aren't a good judge of that. And second, happiness is fleeting. What we're looking for isn't happiness. What we're looking for is joy and significance. So unfortunately, in a broken world with broken people, divorce happens. It's never a great choice. But sometimes it's the better of two bad choices. That's the reality of living in a broken world with broken people. One of my New Testament professors wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew and on this a particular passage, he said something that I think is worth quoting. Still, however, it is worth adding that conceding the hard realities of our continuing fallingness and the reality of forgiveness of those who fail must not allow us to weaken our commitment to continue to strive after the ideal. Jesus is putting all of things out, these things out there, not because they're impossible, but because, by the grace of God, they are possible. So let me ask you three questions. What is more characteristic of your heart, love or lust? Number two, what is one step you could take this week to move away from lust? And number three, how does Jesus' view of divorce change how you view marriage?
Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.